Why, hello, Julia. Hello. So it's December and the holiday season is in full swing. So in keeping with the season, I thought for this episode, we would visit one of Milwaukee's most iconic places of worship. Well, maybe the most iconic, St. Joseph S. Basilica. Sounds awesome. So the Basilica is located at the corner of 6th and Lincoln Avenue, and it is the largest church in Milwaukee. The building is simply enormous. It can hold 2,000 worshipers at any given time, and its copper dome can be seen from miles away in all directions. And for lack of a better description, it's essentially like having a grand European cathedral located right here in Milwaukee. So St. Josephat's was built in the 1890s, but its roots go all the way back to the late 1850s when the first Polish immigrants began to arrive in Milwaukee. The vast majority of Poles who came to Milwaukee were from the area of Poland that had been annexed and occupied as part of Prussia. More specifically, they were mostly from the Prussian provinces of Posen, Silesia, and Pomerania along the Baltic Sea coast. So from just a handful of immigrants in the 1850s, the, po the Polish population in Milwaukee grew to about 7,000 in 1874, 30,000 by the end of the 1880s, and then to about 70,000 by the turn of the century, which made the Poles the second largest ethnic population in Milwaukee, second only to the Germans, of course. By 1915, their population was over 100,000. What drew the Poles to America and to Milwaukee was a number of political and economic challenges. By the start of the 19th century, Poland itself had been partitioned by Prussia, Russia, and Austria. Under Prussia, the Poles suffered from, from religious oppression and compulsory military service in the Prussian army. There was chronic unemployment and overpopulation in many areas of Poland. And in addition, most Polish peasants didn't own their own land and were constantly on the verge of starvation. The people simply grew tired of war, political strife, and poverty, and poor living conditions. And they chose to come to America to seek good-paying jobs and the ability to own their own homes. When the Poles initially arrived in Milwaukee, they settled in essentially three areas of the city. The largest population was on Milwaukee's near south side, which stretched from Lake Michigan on the east to 27th Street on the west, and from Greenfield Avenue on the north to Lincoln Avenue on the south. Many of these Poles found work at the baby rolling mill, meatpacking plants, flour mills, tanneries like Pfister and Vogel, the Alice Reliance Works, construction industrial trades, or in scores of small shops along Greenfield and Lincoln Avenues, as well as Mitchell Street. In fact, from the 18, 1800s all the way to the mid-20th century, Mitchell Street was the commercial downtown of the Polish South Side and was popularly known as the Polish Grand Avenue. A second Polish neighborhood was established on Milwaukee's east side in and around the intersection of Brady Street and Humboldt Avenue. What drew Poles to this neighborhood, first and foremost, were the plentiful jobs at the many mills, factories, and tanneries along the Milwaukee River that was just a few blocks away. Another factor was that the land in this area was relatively cheap, and the end result was a neighborhood full of tiny lots and modest cottages. The third Polish enclave arose on a narrow spit of land located between Lake Michigan and the Inner Harbor, and that, of course, was Jones Island. As many as 1,600 Kashubs from the Baltic Sea Coast established a fishing community that one observer characterized as a picturesque jumble of homes, saloons, fish sheds, and net reels linked by a street system that might be best described as improvised. In a good year, the fishermen of Jones Island would haul in nearly 2 million pounds of lake trout, yellow perch, walleye, 
lake herring, and whitefish. So it's no wonder that the Friday fish fry became a Milwaukee tradition that was most likely started on Jones Island. Okay, Julia, on that note, it's important to note that the vast majority of Poles in Milwaukee were staunch Roman Catholics. And the very first Polish parish established in Milwaukee was St. Stanislaus, uh-huh. which was founded in 1866. It was also just the third Polish par- parish in all the United States. So their first church in Milwaukee was located at the corner of Fifth and Mineral. So if you know where Botan is, a Mexican restaurant yeah. is, yeah. It was located just to the south on the same street. Okay. And that church was actually a hand-me-down. It was purchased from a German Lutheran congregation. That building, unfortunately, proved to be too small for the rapidly growing community. And in 1872, they began construction on their current and much larger church at Fifth and Mitchell. Those Poles who lived near Brady Street, and who, by the way, would walk to Mass with St. Stanislaus. Yeah, quite a hike. <laughs> it's three miles one way from the corner of Brady Street and Humboldt to Fifth and Mineral. You did say devout, so. Yeah, they were devout. Yes, yeah. So can you imagine mom, dad, the kids, grandma, grandpa walking from Brady Street to Fifth and Mineral like at least once a week? Yeah, it's, six miles. Wow. Yeah, that is definitely faith. Mm-hmm. Um, so when they decided to build their own church in 1871, they built St. Hedwig's, uh, located at Brady and Humboldt. Um, as the Polish community start, continued to grow and grow, and as the existing churches became overcrowded, they established St. Hyacinth at the corner of 15th and Beecher in 1883, and then both St. Vincent de Paul at the corner of 21st and Mitchell, and St. Josephat's in 1888. So in all, there are actually 20 Catholic churches in Milwaukee that are direct descendants of St. Stanislaus Church. So the first St. Josephat's Church was erected in 1888 and was built by a core of just over 300 families. And unfortunately, it burned down only six months after it was built. The fire started in the middle of the night, and when it was discovered, there was a rash of devout poles to the rescue, as one newspaper reported. However, the fire couldn't be stopped, and when the roof caved in, the crash could be heard all the way downtown. At the time, the parish priest was Father William Grutza. Prior to becoming a priest, he had actually worked with his hands as a blacksmith. Uh, he became uh, St. Josephat's priest after serving as an assistant at, of course, St. Stanislaus. Grutza was a man of action, and even before the fire was completely extinguished, he had plans for a new church. Under his guidance, the congregation built a new church at a cost of $30,000. It was a brick building with the school occupying the bottom two floors and the sanctuary for mass on the third floor. The church, school, and an adjacent convent were dedicated in November of 1889, which was less than six months after the fire. Unfortunately, not long after its completion, that second church was too small for the growing congregation. By 1895, the parish had grown to over 12,000 members and desperately needed a larger church. Grutzel was seen by many as a visionary man, and he decided to think on a truly grand scale for his third church. He hired local architect Erhard Brielmeyer to draw up a set of plans for that next church. Erhard Brielmeyer was born in southwestern Germany in 1841, and his family immigrated to the U.S. when Erhard was only nine years old. He learned carpentry and construction from his father, and by his early 30s, he was working as a carpenter and woodcarver, 
specializing in altars, pews, and other church furnishings. Newspaper accounts from the late 1870s show that Brillmeyer created altars for Catholic churches as far away as Minnesota and Indiana. Eventually, five of his sons joined the family business, and Earhart began to add architecture to the services that his firm could offer. A list of Brillmeyer's architectural work prior to St. Josephat's is actually difficult to find. In fact, there are not there may not be many buildings in Milwaukee at all that predate the church, and it appears to be one of his earliest designs. Hmm. Brillmeyer's design for St. Josephat's was for, for a monumental building built primarily of brick with terracotta decoration. It was designed in an Italian Renaissance style with classical overtones. It featured a traditional cross-shaped floor plan, matching bell towers, and a soaring central dome. And it was clearly inspired by St. Peter's Basilica at the Vatican. The price tag, $150,000, which would be equivalent to about $6 million today. Small budget. <laughs> yeah. Not, not, yeah. So that was a staggering amount of money for a congregation made up, of, made up of recent immigrants whose wage earners worked with their hands as unskilled laborers 10 to 12 hours a day, six days a week for only a dollar or two a day. So, but Father Gretzel was not discouraged. Under his leadership and with his passion and, and his contagious enthusiasm, the congregation soon began to share his dream for a monumental cathedral-sized building as their home parish. The amount of money needed was staggering, but Father Gretzel had an advantage on his side, and that was the sheer size of the congregation. At the time, St. Josephat's was the largest congregation of any denomination in Milwaukee. Like I said, it had over 12,000 members, which had a grade school, a boys' high school, and a full range of parish organizations that could help raise money. The immigrant par parishioners may not have been able to, to donate much to the new church individually, but when you combine the thousands upon thousands of members' modest donations, it soon adds up to a lot of money. And so the building project was on. Now, throughout the entire building project, Father Grutza became known as the king of the bargain makers. And I really like this one. He was known as the man who could stretch a dollar until it did the work of five. That's good. I like that. So one of the most interesting parts of this story is how the congregation acquired the building materials for the church. So if you remember, if you remember Bruno Meyer's initial plans called for a church made of brick with terracotta decoration. When you, but when you look at St. Josephat's today, it is clearly not made of brick and terracotta. Yeah. It's made of stone. stone. Mm -hmm. That change happened really early in the process when Father, Father Gutza was in Chicago shopping for various brick options. That was where he caught wind that the U.S. Post Office and Customs House in Chicago was condemned and was going to be toned down. That building had built, been built only 15 years prior. It was opened in 1880 at a cost of $6 million, or about $100 million today. It was one of the largest government offices in America and was described at the time as one of the handsomest government edifices in the country. It was furnished with four elevators, a thoroughly modern heating system, a huge central skylight, and every convenience of the age. It housed a number of government agencies, including the post office, the internal revenue collector, the interior department, and federal courts. However, by 1890, the building had developed some serious flaws. The Chicago Tribune stated, 
the deplorable condition of Chicago's government building increases each day. Broken water pipes all through the structure, huge cracks in the walls, and a thousand other evidences of the unfitness for the building for occupancy are apparent to anyone who cares to investigate. And not only that, Julia, but one of the federal federal judges at the at the building said, the defects are patent. Besides the breaks that have appeared in the walls, some of the pipes have parted and the sewage has escaped to an extent that has contaminated the walls. Ew. This can be observed by a visit to my courtroom. Yikes. Yuck. All these problems were essentially tied to the poorly designed and constructed foundation of the building. The building unsettled evenly by over a foot in some places, which led to all the other problems. Mm-hmm. In 1895, the decision was made to tear down the entire building. Father Grutze sensed a bargain, and with his architect's blessing, he struck a deal to purchase the entire demolished building for about $20,000, which was less than half the estimated cost for just the bricks in Brunelmeyer's design for the church. So the list of materials that Father Grutze purchased included not only 200,000 tons of light brown Ohio sandstone, but also wooden doors, bronze railings, light fixtures, marble flooring, six 30-foot-tall granite columns, and even doorknobs that bear the insignia of the U.S. Department of the Treasury. So over several weeks, they shipped the salvage material to Milwaukee on 500 railroad flat cars. Earhart Brillmeyer and his firm then numbered, measured, cataloged, and stored each and every piece of building material across the street from the building site. Brillmeyer was then tasked with modifying his original drawings for brick and terracotta and redesigning them to use the newly acquired stone and other materials. So to be as thrifty as possible, he used only the Chicago material whenever possible. They recut or reshaped as few of the stones as they could, and they avoided purchasing any new material whenever possible. The whole process was like a three-dimensional jigsaw puzzle with the added complication that they were designing and assembling a completely new building rather than reconstructing the original Chicago post office. What's also remarkable is that if you compare Brillmeyer's original drawings to his modified design using only the Chicago material, it's amazing how similar his modified design is to the original. And at a casual glance, you can hardly tell that they're completely different designs. Construction of the church began in 1896, and the cornerstone was laid at a ceremony in July of 1897. The men of the parish supplied most of the construction labor, particularly for the excavation for the foundation and the basement level. The legend goes that the men dug and the women of the parish carried the dirt away in their aprons, one shovel full at a time. Even during construction, the parish was constantly short of money. When the foundation and the basement were completed, the parish couldn't afford to pay an outside contractor to complete the building. Father Grutza stepped in and acted as the general contractor. He personally supervised a crew of 30 masons and workmen until the project was completed. That selfless act alone saved the parish over $30,000, but it cost him an enormous personal price. Being the priest to an enormous congregation of 12,000 was challenging enough. Adding the responsibility for construction turned out to be too much. When the construction was almost completed, two altars from the old church were moved to the new church as a symbol of continuity. And when the exterior of the building was finally completed, the dome was one of the largest in the United States, 
with an 80-foot diameter and a height of over 200 feet. Some sources say its size was second only to the dome on the U.S. Capitol building. The dome is framed in structural steel and clad in copper, which was some of the only material that was not taken from the Chicago Post Office. On July 21, 1901, St. Josephus was dedicated in a four-hour ceremony. Archbishop Sebastian Mesmer praised Father Grutze by saying, This congregation can never show the full measure of gratitude it owes to Father Grutze. You know how he has devoted himself to this great work and how he has impaired his health in its accomplishment. And just five weeks after the ceremony, Father Grutze, St. Josephat's blacksmith priest, was dead. His work finished and his vision a reality. So you'd think that would be the end of the story, right, Julia? I mean, it would be an insane end to the story, so I'm hoping there's more. There is more. Okay. So, okay. So during construction, the original $150,000 budget had doubled to over $300,000 in actual costs by the time the church was built. And in the following years, income failed to keep pace with interest payments and operating expenses, and the debt rose to $500,000. Wow. Yeah, the parish was in trouble. And by 1909, they found themselves in default. The unpaid bills placed an additional burden on families who already constantly struggled to make ends meet. Many of the parishioners had taken second mortgages to help pay for the building, and they now feared that they would lose the roofs over their heads. There were even rumors that the parish would be dissolved and the church would be converted into a grand opera house. So in 1910, the Catholic Archdiocese of Milwaukee was forced to step in and at least put together a plan to save the parish and the church. Mm -hmm. So to make a pretty long and complicated story short, the parish was placed in the hands of an order of Franciscan friars out of Buffalo, New York. And And to the parishioner's delight, the friars shared the same Polish heritage as the congregation. Perfect. So, yeah, so it was a natural fit. Uh, the, the Franciscans assumed 80% of the congregation's debt, and the remaining 20% was split among other Milwaukee Catholic parishes. So for the next several years, all of St. Josephat's and his organizations worked steadily to raise money to retire the debt. The primary sources of income were the parish dues, the pew rents, and Sunday offerings. But above and beyond those, school children donated pennies to the cause, and the adult organizations competed to see who could donate the most money each year. Picnics were held in the summers, bazaars in the winters, and all the proceeds from the Drama Society went to reducing the debt. Under the steady administration of the Franciscans, the debt was, resu- was reduced to 270000 by 1914, and it was eliminated by 1925. Wow. So by the time the building was finally paid for, the parish had another visionary pastor, similar to Father Grutze. Beginning in 1914, Polish-born Felix Baron became the pastor of St. Josephat's. Like Grutze before him, Father Baron envisioned a glorious church. And just like Grutze, he persuaded the parishioners to take on an ambitious venture. When the building was completed in 1901, there was no money to decorate the interior. And so it remained a blank canvas, so to speak, that had been painted alabaster white. And while it did feature plenty of architectural embellishments like coffered ceilings and stained glass windows from Austria, it wasn't quite complete. In 1926, under Barron's leadership, the congregation hired an acclaimed Roman artist named Gonipo Raghi to finish the interior work. 
Bragi and his crew decorated every inch of wall and ceiling space with murals and gold leaf. They finished and painted the ornamental plaster work, and they painted all the columns with faux marbling. It took two years and a cost of nearly $125,000. But this time, Father Barron and the parish had raised enough money to pay for the project. <laughs> Finally finished, St. Josephus was consecrated in November of 1928. It had taken over 30 years but the church was finally complete, and more important, it was debt-free. Then, in 1929, following a petition from the Franciscan friars, Pope Pius XI declared St. Josephus a basilica. Only the largest and most beautifully decorated churches, and that are considered major centers for devotion, can even be considered for basilica status. And even then, it can only be granted by the Pope. Pope Pius XI's decree stated, St. Josephat Church distinguishes itself for its grandeur, imposing style, and masterpieces of art to such a degree that it has been recognized as one of the outstanding feats of architecture, not only in the, Arch not only in the Archdiocese of Milwaukee, but also in all of North America. When St. Josephat's was elevated to basilica status, it became only the third basilica among the thousands of Catholic churches throughout the entire country. So, even if you're not a Catholic, a Christian, or religious in any way, I strongly suggest that you, if you have the chance, take an hour or so to visit St. Josephus Basilica. The sheer size is nearly overwhelming, and the interior decoration is absolutely breathtaking. Beautiful, yeah. Um, there's a visitor center and displays that tell the story of the, of the basilica with plenty of old photographs and the images of Brill Myers' two, two original designs. You can also take a pretty fascinating self-guided audio tour for just a few dollars, and you can even see the doorknobs with the Treasury Department insignia in person. It's my favorite. <laughs> so St. Josephat's is simply one of the most impressive architectural feats in all of Milwaukee. And I think that knowing the story of how it was built and who built it makes the story that much more impressive. And that is our story for today, Julia. It's one of my um, favorite buildings in Milwaukee at... Not necessarily for the aesthetics of it, though it's beautiful, but uh, that idea of demolishing a building but keeping the pieces useful uh, is something that people have explored in how to reduce like waste from construction right. and like we see it here, Cream City brick material that they don't make anymore. Right. Um, so I love that they did it, you know, a hundred years ago. Like, but I just read like, an article in the New York Times the other day about what to do with construction material and yep. don't just throw it in a dumpster and put it in the landfill. Yep. Something can be done with these cabinets, these beams, this flooring material, yeah. if not for new buildings, but maybe for other purposes as well. Yeah. And I, you know, it's one of those things that you see Habitat for Humanity does kind of on yep. a smaller scale, residential scale, but clearly this was a very grand scale um, in the case of this building, but I think it's a... And if you look at the old post pictures of the old post office, versus the church they are nothing, nothing alike. alike i mean yeah the fact they took the material from that one to make the other is to me it's absolutely amazing it's the creativity ingenuity i mean i'm and skill a skill for sure but i think it's a really great um kind of poster child for the success of that sort of innovation and that it's worth taking the time to do it the, and i love that the parishioners had such a huge impact on the labor and the fundraising and oh yeah, it was it was that. it was a true labor of love. The yeah. building of this church was a labor of love, 
And the fact that these parishioners took mortgages on their homes that's to amazing. donate to their parish, you know, that's that says even more. Agreed. So yeah, if you get a chance, go see it. Go inside. It's I I went last summer okay. on a yep. weekday. Yep. And I was the only person in the entire You can get really church. good pictures it was, by yourself. Yeah, it is is it's breathtaking. Yeah. So. And they always participate in doors open as well. That's true. So that's a great a great so, time to go. Yeah. Go go on your own, go during doors open, but go. Yes, definitely. All right. Thank you, Julia. Thanks so much.